John 15, we're in a series that we've been calling The Life with God, and it surrounds the second half of the gospel according to John. Uh, before Easter, we did, we were basically in a study at the beginning of John, the first half of John, called Jesus is Reality, where we were looking at John chapter 1 through 12, which are stories of Jesus' actions and his speeches on his identity. Jesus will go on these long speeches about his identity and who he is. And then chapters 13 through 17, Jesus, now everything slows down in the Gospel of John. Jesus pulls his disciples away with him, and he prepares them for his death. He prepares his disciples, those closest to him, for his death by saying that he's going away. Quote, going away. Remember that last week, Tim Mackey was with us from the Bible Project, and he said how strange this sounded. That Jesus is going away, but then he says, but then I will be with you, and then I will be in you. So I'm going away, but I, it's good that I go away, because when I go away, I will be with you and in you. And that's kind of confusing. And what Jesus is teaching about is that he's teaching about the Spirit. Now, in John chapter 1 through 12, the teachings of Jesus had primarily been the, the focus primarily was on showing that Jesus was the revelation of God. The Logos made flesh. Go back and listen to the first teaching we did in John. Jesus makes himself, throughout the book of John, chapters 1 through 12 especially, equal with God or equal with Yahweh. On a couple points he does this explicitly. On one point, the Jewish leaders want to kill him for doing it. Like, you can't say that. That makes you equal with God, and we want to kill you now. But Jesus also says throughout the first half of John that, Jesus, that God is his Father and that Jesus is the Son. So he's equal with God. He's, God is his Father. He's the Son. And so this idea of the dual identity of God, God the Father and God the Son. And Tim Mackey came in last week and taught us that the idea of, of this dual identity of God takes another further step in development in the second half of John with the development of the Spirit. So John starts talking about the Spirit, or Jesus does, rather. Jesus says that he will go to the Father, and the Father will send the Spirit, and the Spirit will be the very presence of Jesus in us and the one who brings us into the life of the Father and the Son, making us one with them. That's all last week. Please go back and listen to that. That's important. Let me show you how this is true. Let me show you that when I'm, I'm just not making this up. Look at, uh, it's on the screen, John 14. Jesus says this, if you love me, keep my commands and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. Who is this advocate that he, Jesus will give us? The spirit of truth. Verse 16. On that day when the Father sends the spirit, on the day when the Father sends the spirit on the church, you will realize that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. See that? The spirit is in us and the spirit brings us in partnership with God or into the life of God. So the Spirit is God and the one, the part of the Trinity that brings us into the life of God. That's why we're calling this series The Life of God, Life with God. Now, I will admit this. The second half of John is so hard to comprehend with our minds. We kind of got to feel it, though. And I know it's weird. The first half of John is really easy to get, like all these parables and stories and encounters and teachings and all this stuff, these, these, these speeches that Jesus gets, and it's really cool to see them. But the second half of John, he's jumping all over the place, and he's talking about these things that you kind of like, some of us know them, and we read it and we go, mmm, and that means we got it, right? <laughs> and a lot of us are like, what? What is that? The disciples are like, what are you saying? You're not even, can you just talk plainly? We don't understand what you're saying. These things kind of, kind of have to be intuitive. They have to be felt. And so let me read to you 
In John 15, what life with God starts to look like, and let's ask the Spirit of God to teach us, okay? John 15, verse 1. Jesus speaking, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are, already, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remained in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I have learned from my father I have made known to you. You do not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. This is my command, love each other. This is God's word, let me pray. Lord, I ask this morning that we would be kind of saturated and sit into this. I ask God for your spirit to teach us today. I submit all of my capacities to you, my mind. would keep me from stumbling and confusing what I'm even trying to say. Lord, my heart, everything, all my capacities to submit to you. Together we submit our, our, our hearts to you and our opening our minds to you. Would you speak to us, spirit of the living God, speak to us through the scriptures. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Uh, my wife, Ashley, loves metaphors. She loves analogies. If you've ever been over our house at dinner, or if you've ever been in a small group with us, she loves to speak in analogies and in metaphors. When we um, used to help, we, uh, the first three years, we would help start community groups and hand them off and start them and hand them off, that sort of thing. And um, I would, and everyone in the group knew after like three weeks that Ashley, I mean, maybe even one week, Ashley is the analogy person. She's a metaphor person. I would explain something or in some sort of text. And I would explain something that we're talking about. And I would use my, the best scripture I can, I can even put forth to connect. And I launch into a Bible study. This is why I don't do community groups anymore because it's, it's not good. And I try to connect it with like the bigger story of God and all this stuff and try to explain it. And then I look around the room and there's just blank stares and crickets. Like, and I'm like, and they're like. <laughs> and then Ash will look at me. And then she'll just do this. She'll go, she'll say, it's like this. And then she just says something about cheese or like driving a car or something like that. And everyone in the room goes, oh. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm giving you gold. What is this? Cheese. 
That doesn't even make any sense, cheese. And everybody would get it, everyone. And so she does this. It's like a thing now. Like, so we were at dinner the other night, and she'll go, it's like, and I just, and she looks at me, and she smirks. She's like, watch. It's like, and then she just goes. <laughs> but the reality is, we do think in metaphors. But more than that, we live in metaphors. Metaphors aren't simply language. They actually structure our perceptions and structure our reality. Metaphors structure our understanding of the world. A linguist named George Lakoff, who is a professor at Berkeley, and a philosopher named Mark Johnson came together to write a book called Metaphors We Live By. You might have, some of you have read this in, in university. The book, in the book they claim that metaphors change and shape the way we think about something and, and how we, because they change the way that we think about something, it changes the way that we live into something. And they give examples because they give metaphors because that's what the book's about. And they say this. Early in the book they go, Take, for example, the metaphor of argument as war. Argument as war. And they use examples. Your claims are indefensible. He attacked every weak point in my argument. His criticisms were right on target. I never won an argument with him. If you use his strategy, he will wipe you out. Things like that. And they go on. They list a ton of them. They say that arguments and war are different kinds of things that require different kinds of actions, but... Argument is particularly structured, understood, performed, and talked about in terms of war in our culture. And that shapes our reality of what we think an argument is. What is an argument? And we think of it in the metaphor of war, and we don't understand it outside of that metaphor. They say, for an example, imagine if our culture saw arguments in terms of a dance. What if that was a controlling narrative, or that was a controlling metaphor? If we change the metaphor, we change the reality. They say, if we thought of it as a dance where no one wins or loses an argument, or where there is no attacking or no, offend, or, or no defending, no gaining or losing ground, where the participants are seen as performers and the goal is to perform in a balanced and aesthetically pleasing way, if that was the, the controlling metaphor for an argument, it would change the very reality of what it meant to argue. My sister was married last week. That's where I was last week. My sister was getting married, and they did their first dance. And as they were dancing, and it was beautiful, I never thought of an argument. I never looked at the dance and like, oh, that reminds me of an argument. <laughs> that's just not, I mean, when Ash and I dance, we argue, but that's like something different. But it's like, it, you don't think of that. But if you did, if you started thinking of an argument with the metaphor of dancing, it would change what an argument meant, and that is their point. They do the same thing with time as money. They say, the metaphor for time is money. You are wasting my time. This thing will save you hours. I don't have time to give you. How do you spend your time these days? That thing will cost me an hour. I've invested a lot of my time in her. Do you have any time left? Now, why do I say all of this? Because metaphors are not just poetic or make things, or they don't make things just interesting or they are not simply there to help us understand something. We live by metaphors. We live into them, and they have the power to shape our reality. Jesus, here in John 15, picks up one of the most important metaphors in the Old Testament scriptures. Vine, branches, fruitfulness. He picks up one of the most important Old Testament metaphors. He picks it up and he repurposes it as our, a metaphor of our life in God. Jesus wants to change the metaphor that we live by. He's like, I want you to live like this. I want to give you a different picture. And I want this picture here to reshape your imagination. I want you to think in terms of you are a branch and I am the vine. That's what I want to do. 
Now, metaphors do help us understand complex concepts. Like I was saying, this concept of being, having life in God is complex, very complex. This is basically what it means. This is what Jesus is saying at the latter half of John. It's on the screen. Jesus wants us to understand the point of the Christian life and the experience, and experience is life in God through Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Christian life is, and the Christian experience is, life in God through Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's great, but what does that mean? What does that look like? How does that feel? What is that, how does that engage our senses? So Jesus here uses a metaphor that we can live into that reality, that we can start living into life in God through Christ, connected to Christ by the power of the Spirit. The metaphor that we are to live by is Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. Jesus is the vine, we are the branches. Easy way to remember this is Jesus is divine. You guys know where I'm going with that? The worst, I know that's so bad, but you'll never forget it. Jesus is divine and you are the branches. Now that metaphor is simple, but it's, it's really to reshape our imagination. See, the vine is that stump and root system that gives life and nourishment to the branches, and the branches are to bear fruit. Now, you cannot push this, this metaphor too far. You are not a vine, roots, it's system, fruit, all in yourself. That's not who you are. You are actually just a branch from a vine. Now, if you need a visual, here's one that's just a real simple one that you, you can just find online. This is just really easy. So that you got the roots, everybody understand this, and you have the vine, and the branches, that's us, you see the branches, and then from the branches come fruit. Simple, right? Jesus is divine, we are divine. Okay, everybody there? All right. Here's what this means. You keep it up there for a second. Here's what this means. One hand, it's mystically beautiful and mind-blowing. On one hand, this is so beautiful and mystical, but on the other hand, it's quite challenging and even somewhat insulting to think about. First, how is this challenging and insulting a little bit? Here it is. And I don't mean, again, I don't mean to insult you, but this is kind of insulting. You don't have inner light. The light in you doesn't honor the light in me. We don't find ourselves by looking within. We don't know who we are by going inward and inward and inward in ourselves to find what's ultimately true and there. Light and light and love happen from outside of us. They happen from being connected to an outside source, and that true source, that true vine is Jesus. That's what this is saying. You, if you get cut off from the branch that is Jesus, you have no inner light, no inner love, no inner life. You have not, you were dead. You were cut off from the life of God. You might think you might have a good 80-year run, 110-year run, where you're just laying on the ground, just not, not producing any fruit or giving back to the world, but just think that you're happy, but you are cut off from true vitality and true life. That's the affront to our like, but, but I'm good but I have everything I need within me. I need to find myself by looking inward, and I have to honor all of my desires and all of my wants and everything that I want to do. It's just not true. It's not true. Jesus is the true source. He's the true vine. And if we're not connected to that vine, we have no life. We have no true vitality. We have no awakeness toward the world and eternity. Now, the beauty of it, the mystical beauty of it, is that if we are connected to Jesus... We have the spirit of the living God in us. 
And then we're brought into this divine dance with God. We are brought into the life of God and fellowship with God and oneness with God. This is mystical and beautiful and insane that we would be brought into the life of the divine. Last week, Tim Mackey left us with the foundations of the Trinity. God, three in one. Jesus is saying here that the way that we are brought into, we are brought into that love relationship, God in three in one, through abiding in Christ, we are brought into the relationship of God. And this is mystical and this is organic. It's a mystical, organic union with God. A life with God that is so seamless that it's hard to know where one ends and the other begins, like vines and branches. That, a life that is so organic that the byproduct of a life connected to God is fruitfulness and fruit born in the life of the world. Just by staying connected to God, we become fruitful. That's what Jesus is talking about. Now, it's mystical in one sense, and we have to understand it is mystical, but it's also very practical. This is how we'll look at this metaphor. So you can take that off now. This is how we'll look at this metaphor. Jesus, in this text, is saying something about pruning. I didn't, these aren't on the screen, so if you want to take these notes, write them down. Jesus says something about pruning, about remaining, about warning, and about friendship. I really tried to make that last one an ing, but it didn't work. Pruning, remaining, warning, and friendship. This is what Jesus talks about here in this passage or in this section. First, pruning. Look at verse 1 and 2. The Father is the gardener, Jesus says, and he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. First, notice that no matter what, the Christian life consists of being cut. No matter what. It doesn't matter if you're like, oh, I'm fruitless, I'm being cut. But if you're fruitful, you're being cut back. There's two ways of being, there's cut off. In Greek, it's literally a cut off. The, the unfruitful, unattached to the vine, where there's no life in you, you get cut off. And we'll talk about that in the end. Or if you are fruitful and you are abiding in Christ, you will be cut back. Or another word of saying that is you will be pruned. So there's, there's pruning involved in our lives, and that's painful. And that's no matter what no matter what, we're getting pruned. If we have a fruitful life in Christ, or we're not fruitful, God prunes us. Any, God is a good active gardener, and he's consistently clearing parts of our lives away to make more room for good fruit, greater fruit. God is a good vintner that wants a better vintage every year. So he cuts back. He cuts back. Every season, he wants something new, something different, some better fruit in our lives. Now, at first sight, superficially, pruning seems to be hurtful and counterproductive. Why would you cut things back when I'm in full bloom? Why would you cut things back and kill them all the way down, almost taking everything down to the stump? Why would you do that? It seems counterproductive. But any good gardener knows that's how good fruit is for. Life with God means that we give God access and the authority to cut away parts of our lives that are not producing the fruit he desires. Being connected to God looks like this open-handed thing. I mean, I love and, you know, I want our church to grow in like physical expression during worship. Just would like that. I'm not saying I want everyone doing cartwheels or something like that. But like, you, you can move during worship. And you don't have to like worship like this. Like that, you don't have to do that. Um, if you like that, it's fine. But like, uh, Matt, like see your life as this like organic vine, or organic branch connected to God where you're like, like, I'm open to you, God. If you want to prune here, 
Like, you know what's best in my life. You know what you're doing with my life. You're a good gardener. You're good. Even when I think it's counterproductive and it's super painful, you know what's good. I trust that you are a good gardener and open-handed. Here I go. Palms to the sky. God, have your way. And the pruning, the cutting back, can come in the form of discipline. Hebrews 12, 4 through 11 say that God disciplines us like a good parent does. Like good parents discipline their child. If you were, if you grew up, I mean, I, I guarantee there's a good possibility that you were disciplined. If you were not disciplined, your parents were probably hippies. That's probably what happened. Um, or just bad parents. Like good parents know how to discipline their children and know exactly th- what kind of discipline to bring in the life of the child. And God is a good father. He knows. Don't do that because it will bring death death to your relationships, and death to everything that you hold dear. Do not do that. God knows. And the pruning he brings in our life is discipline. Pruning can also be painful separation from something you love as God reorders your loves. You love this out of proportion, so I'm going to remove this because this love is killing you, and you don't even see it. Pruning can also be incredibly freeing as well. I think Charles Spurgeon called it blessed subtraction, where God removes things, and you're like, oh, I'm so thankful that God removed that from my life. The purpose of pruning is a fruitful life. Every gardener knows this. So what what does Jesus mean by fruitful here? Look at verse 4 with me. Look at verse 4. I'm going to read it from the Message Bible because I think this, this really captures it. I think Eugene Peterson did a good job translating this right here. It says this, live in me. Make your home in me as I do in you. In the same way that a branch can, can't bear grapes by itself, but only by being joined to the vine, you can't bear fruit unless you are joined with me. Make your home with you. Look at that first part. Make your, home, make your home in me, I think, is the best interpretation of the word abide or remain. Some of your translations say remain in me. Other ones say abide in me. But here Eugene Peterson says, make your home in me. I think that's the best modern translation. Live in me, Jesus is saying. Make your home in me. When we do that, the life of God will be coursing through our veins. We will be, it will, the life of God will be the breath in our lungs. When that happens, fruitfulness will be a byproduct of our lives. Now, fruit bearing is not a test, per se, that you have to produce on. It's like, like Jesus comes and says, well, you know, the, the, the way that, uh, it's, not a, it's not a test of like we bear fruit and like give them to God like this. Like, God, I have fruit in my life. Here you go. Here's your fruit. And I hope that you don't cut me off in the vine. That's not really what's going on here. You don't make fruit and present it to God. According to this metaphor, you don't produce fruit. The vine produces the fruit. The branch can bear, uh, can't, cannot bear fruit by itself, Jesus says, unless it remains in the vine. A branch cannot bear fruit unless it remains. You just become the conduit that God uses to bring about fruit in the world. So our real job is to stay connected to Christ, to stay, to remain by our association with Jesus and his life in you and your home in him. The fruit will come through your life. And I want you to rethink this word fruit. Some of us think fruitfulness are things that we do. Paul develops this idea in Galatians and says this. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
What fruit is, is a transformed life. This is not things that you do or produce. These things here are ways of being. So when we think of fruit as like, notice my fruit is successful ministry and souls being saved through what I do and success in my career and no drama in my relationships. It's none of that stuff. That's not fruit. That might happen later, but fruit, real fruit, is what happens in us. It's the, the, the transformed life. They're actually ways of being. It's love is the fruit. It's the life of God will produce in you a love for God and a love for others, a love characterized by self-sacrifice, not self-preservation. That is the fruit of the Spirit. That is the fruit of the Spirit of God making you one with the life of God. It will bore in you, it will birth in you the fruit of love. The fruit of God is that our loves would be reordered to the right things, that we would love the right things. It would bring joy, a life characterized by joy, not based on circumstance, but joy based on obedience to God. Can you imagine that's our joy in life is to obey God? That's, what, that's the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is peace, a life characterized by peace, not a peace based on absence of chaos, but one of mystical peace that passes understanding. So you're in the midst of chaos, and you have this peace from God, from abiding in God that passes. That's, this is the life of God kind of stuff. That is what the life of God means. That's what, being, that's what fruitfulness means. That's what being connected means. And that's why God prunes. He prunes our life so that more love can flow through us and more peace and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. You take those things and go, God, being connected to Christ, that's the fruit that you're gonna, that you're, that you're gonna bring and, and produce in my life. That's the fruit. I don't produce those things. I don't like try really hard like, oh, let me, let me try to produce these things. It's staying connected to Christ, and your loves and everything else are reordered by God. Next, remaining. Second one, remaining. Now, the hinge of this whole section is on Remaining. Remain in me, abide in me, live in me, make your home in me. This is, all, these are all the same things. Now, this is crucial to life with God. Now, what does it mean? What does it mean? First, look at verse 7. It's key because Jesus starts to let us in on what this might mean. What, is, what, is, what does it mean to remain in God? Look at verse 7. If you remain in me and my words remain in you. And my words remain in you, that's like another step of development here. First it was, okay, we have to remain in God. And that's, again, that's very, very mystical. Like, I'm going to remain in God. I'm just going to remain. Like, that's, how do I do that? How do I, like, remain in God? So then Jesus, like, develops this as you keep reading. Remain in me and my words remain in you. Oh, that's, that's something. I remain in God. And he explains it a little further. Another development here. I remain, his word remains in me. Remaining has to do with Jesus' words remaining in us. It has to do with prayer. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So it has to do with God's word and me and me communion with God in prayer. What I think um, Jesus' words remaining in us, I think a better translation of that is God's word making its home in us. Think about that. If you remain in me or make your home in me and my words make their home in you. Think about the, the words of God. Think about Christ's words, like making their home in your life. What that might mean, what that does mean, is that Jesus' words can find listening friends. 
where you're listening to this. Because I know that we're really busy people. I know that you have so many things to keep reading and keep up on and keep watching on Netflix. I know that. I get it. <laughs> but our disconnectedness can simply come from us neglecting God's word making its home in our lives. Are we remaining connected to Jesus' words? Are we staying connected to the words of God? Jesus says, and my words are remaining in you. They have, they have listening friends. The, the, the scriptures and Christ's words can find a home where his words are taken seriously. Do you take this thing seriously? Where they're listened to expectantly and responded to honestly. That is these words making their home in your life. What happens next is that once we have Jesus' words, we can then turn to talk to Jesus, and it says that we can ask whatever we want. Do you notice that? You're like, whoa, that verse, I never saw that verse before. I'm going to start that today. <laughs> like, anything I wish. This is going to be awesome. This is great. I have a lot of things to talk to Jesus about. Okay. This doesn't, in context, that's not what this means. That would make no sense. That's, it would make, imagine, let me try to use, I, I, I asked my wife to help me with this one, but then I forgot to a- actually follow up with it. So I don't, I don't know if this is actually a proved analogy, but I'm going to go for it. Imagine. Imagine if you are talking, I'm, we're talking out, down here on, in front of stage after service, and I'm telling you about my wife, Ashley, and I'm telling you how I love her and how, and I'm telling you about her loves, and I'm just explaining to you, like, oh my gosh, she loves this, and I love that she loves this, and this, I'm just, uh, and I'm just like talking about, and I'm just really getting excited about Ashley, and you go, oh my gosh, that reminds me, like right in the middle, interrupt me, that reminds me, um, I heard your friends with Francis Chan, and I want him to promote a thing for me, could you connect us? Imagine if that happened. And I'm like, you're not, you're not listening to me at all. You're not even paying attention to what I'm talking about, someone I love, and you want me to make a connection for you with some guy? Really? That's, this is what we do with God all the time. We go up to God, and God wants to share with us his loves and his passion and where his heart is that day and what he's doing, wants to do through you. And we're like, okay, anyways, that reminds me, God, I want you to do this thing. I need you to hook this thing up and do this. Can you work? And there's, that's no relationship. You're, his words are not abiding in you. If his words are not abiding in you, you can't ask whatever you wish. Because whatever you wish is stupid. <laughs> because what... I, you know you're clapping because you're stupid. You're right. You got, <laughs> that's just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense to go before God and say... Like, this is all, if his words aren't abiding in you, it, it, it takes you abiding and his words abiding in you to start asking what you wish because when you start asking, you will start asking what he wishes because your wishes will become his wishes. That's the whole point of this thing. When, when, a, when a branch is connected to a, to a vine, it produces grapes. It produces things that it's supposed to. If it, it's not gonna like, God, I, you know, I really like to produce apples. It's like, that's not our thing. We're, the, we're, the, we're grapes. That's what we're doing, grapes. <laughs> but I, you know, I know, I know, I know, I know. But I really want apples. You must not understand what you're connected to. You're connected to grapes. And this, we're so confused. We're completely confused because his words don't abide in us. Sometimes our, our very prayers are misaligned. Because we're asking not according to the heart of God. But it takes, guys, it takes time. There's, 
I'm not saying you get this and it's done. It's a lifelong process of abiding in God. I met with someone this last week, and they were telling me how they agonized over praying that God would lead a loved one to Christ. And they were agonizing, and they were almost kind of confused, like, why doesn't God listen to this prayer? And they're like, obviously moved to tears, even talking about it. And as we were discussing and meeting, it, it, it just came out that what, how, 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 by you praying and starting to, and she's like, I'm, I'm praying this, the scriptures and these things, this is what the word says, and I'm praying these things for this person I really, really love, these people I really love, and I want them to come to know Christ. And then she's agonizing and crying, and I'm like, how, how do you not know that by, like, you, as you're connecting to God in prayer for these people, and you're, pray, you're agonizing and crying, how do you not know that that, agonization and, and, and those tears are the very agony and tears of God. Like that's how God feels about the same situation. Because you're so connected, you start to pray according to God's heart. So you see things on our news and your heart breaks like God's heart breaks. And you start to agonize over it like God does. And you start to get angry over things that God gets angry over because God gets angry. And then you start wanting to have compassion where God has compassion because your heart starts linking up to God's heart. This is what abide means. This is what it looks like. We are, we are to ask for things that Christ wants us to ask for, but it presupposes that his word abides in us. The second thing of remaining, I have to move on. Verse 9 and 10, look at this. Remain in my love if you keep my commandments. There's another step in development. Keeping the commands of God. You will remain in my love. Remain in me. And you're like, oh, I want to remain in you, God. And then he says, now keep my commands. You're like, whoa. I thought this was like this mystical thing where I'm like, like walking around doing my thing and going, mm, God, abide in me, me and you, that sort of thing. No, Jesus like roots it down. I'm like, no, keep my commands. That's how you remain in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love, I have told you this so that your joy may be, my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Now, this is very important. Listen. You guys are very smart people. I need you to understand this. If we are recipients of Jesus' love in a way analogous to his own reception of his Father's love, we must remain in Jesus' love exactly by the same means with which he has always remained in his Father's love. Does that make sense? Let me say it again differently. If we are recipients of Jesus' love, just like Jesus is a recipient of his Father's love, And then Jesus' way that he remains in his Father's love, Jesus says that's the exact same way we have to remain in his love. What is it? What is it in this text? How did Jesus remain in the love of the the Father? Obedience. Jesus is like, hey, remain in my love, okay? I love you, the Father loves me, and I love you. Later on he will say the Father loves them too, but that's a whole different thing. I love you, and the Father loves me, and I remain in the Father because I've obeyed him. Now, you remain in me by the same way obedience. We remain in the vine through obedience. Obedience in the scriptures is always an act of trust. Trust in God over trust in our senses, over trust in our desires sometimes, our emotions, our education, sometimes even our eyes. If obedience is tied to love and remaining in Jesus' love, then obedience is really about a demonstration of love. It's loving what God loves. It's abiding in God and it's being brought into the life of God and life of God brought into us where our loves are reordered, where we begin to really love our enemies and love our neighbor and love God's vision for the world and love God's word and the scriptures and love God's will. 
And this is how I think we have obedience wrong. When we think of obedience, the last thing we think of is joy. When I say, hey, guys, obey God, you're not like, oh, that just brings me so much joy. A lot of times we think that God is a great killjoy. Like, no, God kills our joy. God takes, if I obey God, then I can't do all the fun things I want to do, which means that we don't understand true obedience. Jesus says that it's abiding and obeying that we have real joy. Jesus says that right here in the text that we just read. He says, I want you to, your joy to be complete. My joy has been to do the will of God, and your joy, when you're abiding in me, will be doing the will of God, and it's such a great joy. One commentator writes, what is presupposed is that human joy in a fallen world will be at best, will at best be uh, ephemeral, shallow, incomplete, until human existence is overtaken by an experience of the love of God in Christ Jesus, the love for which we were created, a mutual love that issues in obedience without reserve. We have cheap substitutes for this joy. We find them in drugs, and sex, and pleasure, and success, and pride, and they are not lasting. They are, not, they are always dependent on the object. They are always dependent on the high, or the person, on the relationship, on the money, on the success. The greatest joy you will ever experience in this life will come through reliance on God and obedience to his will. Reliance on God and obedience to his will will bring a lasting joy. A joy where the, the, you are in communion with the life of God and, and his life is pulsating through your life and your life is pulsating through the, the life of the divine. Next, we have to wrap this up. I'm sorry. Warning. We're just going to move fast. Warning. Here's the warning. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown in the fire, and burned. Wow. <laughs> Jesus is describing the experience of a non-resident Christian, someone who is not attached to the true vine. Now, this is scary. Now, let's ask the text some questions. The person is thrown out. Thrown out of what? Thrown out of the church? Ultimate reality? A crucial relationship? In any case, they're thrown out of Jesus in some sense. It's withered. How is it withered? Relationally withered, personally withered, spiritually withered. In any case, it's in relation to Jesus they're withered. They gather and throw such branches into the fire and they're burned. Who are they? Who gathers? How are they burned? Are they burned in hell, on earth? Hell after death? Here's the thing. We don't really, no one really agrees on exactly what these mean, but everyone agrees with this. This is a warning. And this is scary. This is what we should do. We should hear this warning that's up on the screen right here and do this. We should pray like this. Dear Lord, please help us to want to make our home with you and to be seriously aware of the dangers of not making this home. As you are clearly trying to teach us that in this text. Dear Lord, please, please help us want to make our home with you. Because it is very scary if we do not. It is life without you. It's life without life. True life. And it's something about being withered. And it's something about being cut off. And it's something about being burned. And we don't want any of that. That is a warning, clearly. God, help us to want to stay connected with you. That's, that's what should issue from this warning. Like, I want to stay connected to the vine. And lastly, friendship. Jesus then says that life with God is becoming a friend of God. Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I've been no, made known to you. 
Now, this word servants in the Greek is the word slave. Now, don't, please don't confuse this with, like, American South slavery. That's not what's happening here. In context, both friends and slaves or friends and servants obey. In context, both friends and servants obey. God requires obedience in all his subjects. We all obey God. But what makes a friend different? He's like, servants obey and friends obey. But what makes a friend different? Jesus says that servants are simply told what to do. You do this, you do that, period. While a friend is informed on his thinking. A friend enjoys his confidence and learns to obey with a sense of privilege and with full understanding of the master's heart. And in other words, a friend is brought into the life of God is not distant or cut off. A friend knows and starts to learn the heart of God. A friend is, it still obeys God, but now knows why, knows the heartbeat behind it. It starts to get into the very life of God. So in short, friends are brought into the life of God, not distant obedience, but trust that issues from experiential knowledge. And Jesus says that that's what the Holy Spirit will do. Lastly, I've said that three times, but I mean it this time. (laughs) What Jesus is doing, if you step back from this, and we're going to go through this again in the summer, so we don't have to deal with it all now, but what Jesus is doing in a huge, like a, a, a macro level here, what he's doing in like more of a meta level, he is, he is saying, he's revising Israel's theological assumption about territory and even about their religion. Israel was always the vine or the vineyard planted in Israel. And when God judged them, he would uproot them. But then he always said, I'm going to root you back in. And this is the land and you are my people. And the locust of my blessing and the hot spot of where I am is in Jerusalem, in the, holy, in the holy place, and you are my people and you are vine and you're planted. And what Jesus is saying now is that there's a new locus of God's, for God's people. And that locus has nothing to do with a hot spot. That locus has nothing to do with a location. That has nothing to do with land. It has everything to do with Jesus. And attachment to God comes through attachment to him. And Jesus said, I'm the true vine, and your attachment to me means you are brought into the life of God. And this is what Jesus laid down his life to make happen. This is why he says there's no greater love than someone who laid down his life for his friends. And he defined friends, those who obey him. And this is what Jesus desires to do, to bring us into the very relationship and life of God, to restore us, to heal us, to truly show us what real life is. And that hot spot, that now the new locus of God's, of, of, of God's kingdom, and the locus of God is in Jesus.